Thank you for tuning in to Raising Resilient Children in a Pandemic, What Parents Need to Know Now, a podcast series with Dr. Ramona Alagia, registered social worker and professor at the Factor Inwintosh Faculty of Social Work, University of Toronto. Every week, leading experts discuss pressing parenting issues during this time of the coronavirus and important ways to promote child resilience, maintain well-being, and heal from trauma. Let's listen to today's broadcast. So welcome to the first episode of Raising Resilient Children in a Pandemic. I'm Ramona Laggia, and today we have Dr. Michael Unger from Dalhousie University to kick us off. Mike, I'm so glad to have you here. It's wonderful that you can make the time. Thanks, Ramona. Nice to have this opportunity. Yes, and it's great across the distance and the provinces that we're able to talk to leading experts from across the country. I know that you're the Canada Research Chair in Child, Family and Community Resilience. You're the Director of the Resilience Research Centre and the Director of Child and Youth Refugee Research Coalition. And on top of that, amongst your several books, you have a new one out called Change Your World, The Science of Resilience and the True Path to Success. I want to hear more about that as we talk about what can parents and all caregivers be doing in this time of a pandemic to raise resilient children. So on that note, given your two decades plus of groundbreaking research, just what is resilience from your perspective? (laughs) I need a drum roll almost after that introduction. So we've understood that resilience is much more than just individual grit or a mindset or a personality trait. The work that that I do and my team all over the world, what we're actually understanding is that resilience is sort of our ability to find all the different resources we need, as well as to get those resources given back to us in ways that make sense to us, that make them meaningful. So I often talk about resilience as our ability to navigate, to get, you know, to to move around the world, find the things that will support us, as well as negotiate for those things to be given to us in ways that make sense. So really resilience is more of a, well, it's it's like a process, right? You you wanna, so if you wanna look at a little child and you're saying, is that child resilient? Well, it's not like an inner quality or just like how they're thinking. You're actually saying, does that child have the you know, ability to find an environment that's gonna bring out the best in them? And when there is that environment around them that allows them to sort of, you know, if they're gonna persevere, that someone helps them to persevere. If they're gonna have a, you know, a positive, if they're gonna be optimistic and believe that you know, things are gonna get better, is that a world that rewards them with real opportunities in the future to use their talents? Uh, you know, so if they put the effort in, a resilient person doesn't just put the effort in, but they also meet a world that says, hey, thanks for putting that effort. We're going to reward you with some sort of like, hey, you know, we're going to acknowledge you. We're going to see the talents that you have. So resilience is kind of like us having lots of stuff to offer, you know, the the ability to calm, the ability to think positively, but it's also about us finding the environments that are actually going to take advantage, that we where we can actually take advantage of those skills we have to be our best and, and our boldest selves. It's so interesting. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember the first time I met you and heard you speak many, many years ago at a qualitative conference in Fredericton at St. Thomas University, I think it was. I don't know if you remember, but you started speaking about your resilience research 
And I had come with this notion that it's sort of like an individual trait. And as you spoke, you really opened up that vista for me. Just, and I think it's what you're saying now, this interaction between the person and their environment and how much the environment has to offer in that. And it just really expanded my notion. And I think a lot of people feel this way. And it's absolutely freeing in some ways to understand it in that way of believing that it's not just solely on the individual and the person. And Ramona, thanks for that memory, but it takes responsibility off the shoulders of individuals to do it all on our own. So for instance, we know, for instance, of studies say, you know, if our kids are going to school, we know that the attitude of the teacher towards our child is going to have a huge impact on our child's performance. So what they've actually shown is that there are, there are studies that have shown that if I want to improve the academic performance of a group of students in a particular classroom, one of the best things I can do is to actually just simply work with the teacher, give the teacher enough resources, give them enough time to prep their classes, give them the supplies they need to be creative, like the art supplies and the stuff to put up on their walls and everything else. And frankly, I can increase the GPA of an entire group of kids by never talking to the child. All I have to do is better resource the teacher. And that is this kind of science of resilience that says, of course, you know, if, if a child's in a well-resourced classroom with a great teacher, of course that child has to sort of step up and take advantage and think, you know, say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to succeed. But I can also sort of motivate a child to step up and be motivated by also changing the opportunities around them so that someone is asking of them, hey, what is it that's special about you and what can you contribute here? For some kids, that might make a difference. I imagine for children with, say, special needs, a smaller classroom ratio is definitely going to make a difference. I'm thinking specifically of children I've, I've worked with, say, who have anxiety disorders, where a smaller, you know, smaller classroom with a specialized curriculum or something makes a huge difference in terms of bringing out their capacities because, because of the anxiety, the barriers that they face to participating. But for children who are functioning in sort of neurotypical ways and, you know, where we don't see any kind of specific delays or challenges, you know, it's sometimes just a matter of do they have a good, well-trained, motivated teacher. Um, And I know that we've emphasized class sizes. I just wish sometimes that the debate was frankly a little bit more, less universal and more targeted. And let me explain that for a second. When we study resilience now, what we've actually come across is this pattern which I'm going to, it's a bit of a strange term, it's called differential impact. But the idea is that certain things have a bigger impact on people with certain challenges. So you have to sort of get the right match. You know, so a a particularly anxious child that can't enter a classroom easily needs a smaller classroom with a more dedicated curriculum or something like that. But for a child who's probably, you know, maybe very outgoing, gregarious, etc., they actually could thrive or find absolutely no burden in a larger classroom. And the problem with a lot of our policies and a lot of things that parents encounter, of course, is that we have sort of the one-size-fits-all approach. And from a resilience point of view, that's not good science. We're far better to probably be thinking about, you know, what does this particular child, having faced these particular challenges, need at this particular time from these particular people? And when you get a better fit 
there. We, we know it works. And I, I give you another, I mean, a lot of parents know this. If you have more than one child, right? You know that sometimes a particular child fits very well into one family, but doesn't fit well into another. And the, and the often the example used is a child say that is struggling with um, maybe some sort of cognitive delay or a particular learning challenge or whatever. Some families, that child in a family that is that's maybe has where the parents didn't go past grade 10 or maybe like one of them only graduated grade 12, which is perfectly fine. A child like that might not feel as stigmatized by their learning challenge than in a family where both parents have multiple university degrees and, and there's high expectations on that child for a certain level of performance. I mean, in a sense, while we normally think of, you know, expectations on children to perform academically as something good, in fact, they kind of backfire. If you're a child with a particular learning challenge and you're in a family of a bunch of high achievers, you're going to feel the stigma or the sting of failure. If you're in a family that maybe emphasizes academic learning less than, say, social networking and the fact that you're part of a family and family commitment and your responsibilities and other things, that the more double income working to high stress professionals running a family kind of might have a very different set of values around that. That child might fit in uh, into you know one family or other much better. And for me, this is really key. If we're going to actually help and build resilience on our kids, we need to, in a sense, see it from their point of view and offer them the opportunity to find the right kind of resource. I watched it on a personal level with my own one of, one of my own siblings who really struggled academically, but you know, I grew up in sort of a second generation immigrant family where it was like, you know, you have to go to university. I swear, I, I swear my parents must have looked over the crib edge and said, thou shalt go to university or something. <laughs> yes. And while it worked quite well for me, I admit, it didn't work out for my sib. And when she ended up in university, it was kind of an abysmal failure, to be fair. She's got a great life. She's really found a niche for herself, but it wasn't that path. And it was a shame that she had to go through that inconvenience to find a better path in life that she had to mark out for herself that wasn't available to her inside my family, but probably would have been available in many other families. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this complexity of fit and match, and uh, as you say, one child can fit in one context in a family, well, another may not as well. And now that we're in a pandemic and all that comes with that, what can parents or, you know, all caregivers do to ensure this kind of resilience in their children, their youth, with the constraints that we're facing have been unprecedented? What, what, what would you say to those parents? Well, what's happened with the pandemic, of course, is that not only have we seen an increase in the stress on our children. Suddenly they're socially isolated, all their activities are gone. They're picking up a lot of worry from their parents. There's economic challenges in many families. All these kinds of things are there. But we've also taken away all the resources, all the things that kids normally need. I, I talk about in Change Your World, this idea of you know being both rugged and resourced. And we're kind of expecting kids to be rugged, little individuals to cope with all this, but actually we've also stripped away all those opportunities they normally have to decompress, to get away from their parents, to play sports, to play musical instruments, do whatever it is that they do that, that would sort of bring that energy back in their lives. So I, I am worried about the, the long-term impact of this. And um, I was recently wrote something with an op-ed in the Globe and Mail with Suzanne King, and Suzanne from McGill University was one of the people who, or actually the person who led this big study back a couple of decades ago on the uh, ice storms in Montreal, in Quebec. 
of children. And those were children, you know, who were still in utero. These were basically pregnant pregnant moms and their unborn children. And then basically going forward to see after, you know, postnatally, what happened to those children, given that the moms were under such stress during that particular time. All to say, as we know, we don't have many studies like that for pandemics, but we can expect that whenever you have a stressed population, you're going to have long-term consequences. And we, we should expect our children to show some of the long-term signs of stress from this. I mean, there's, of course, lots of things you can do to buffer that. But right now, yeah, you, you, know, you know your kids are kind of like Velcro balls. that They're picking up the anxiety in the households. That they're, they're picking up the worries, the financial changes. You know, they definitely are feeling the sting of not being able to do their normal activities, you know, and being ripped out of their social peer groups. There's got to be a long-term consequence for that, as we've known from other things like studies of ice storms and that type of thing. So when you say this uh, term buffer, I'm, I'm intrigued. You mentioned something about if we can buffer or build in these buffers, knowing that there's going to be issues down the road long term, what would those be today? Sure. Well, there are there are things we can do as parents and communities. A few that really seem to stand out, and I'm basing this mostly on research, say, with children after natural disasters or my own work on uh, children going in communities that are going through economic chaos and, and change, especially in like right now we're working with communities out west, Canada and, and in South Africa that are experiencing the changes related to the um, oil and gas industry and, and, the, and the decline in those industries. But I would say things like um, we want to give kids, this is going to sound great for parents, structure, routines, consequences, try and keep their world as, as, as regular as possible. So, you know, letting them sleep in really long hours, there's a whole bunch of reasons not to do that, physiological as well as psychological and social, giving them structure, expectations, uh, holding them accountable for the things that they have to do, whether that's a little bit of mowing the lawn, if you have a lawn, or, uh, you know, taking some responsibilities around the house if they're a bit older. Those things will actually, we know from other like post disasters, like major tsunamis and floods, we know that children who have those routines given back to them and those expectations actually feel more secure, like their world's more predictable and safe. So in this time of instability, it would make sense then whatever parents could do to build in stability so that the security is felt in even what we would imagine are small ways, but these are big ways. They're like you mentioned, the routines, the expectations, the consequences, those don't have to happen in a big way. They can happen right in the home environment. I love chores. <laughs> I, actually, I blogged for psychology today and um, I was actually, I did a whole sort of little blog on, on just chores. and. And, and, or homework, you know, or just getting kids to do their, well, now it's summer, so not, not so much as homework, but, but getting them to do chores. There's another reason for those, though. I, I think sometimes we misunderstand that resilience usually occurs when we hit multiple factors in a child's life that, that spark them. So, you know, if you try and build self-esteem, that's like just a little psychological in intervention. But if you are doing something like that in a bigger context of, well, you know, we're going to build your self-esteem as someone who's going to go out and march for human rights or something. So now you have this bigger idea of contribution to your community, a sense of belonging, a sense of social justice, a sense of, you know, you being uh, someone who's, you know, carrying the flame forward for the community. When you get all those things working together, you tend to see a bigger, more enduring impact. 
So for me, chores are also about conveying to children that they matter, that they're counted on, that they're needed in these families. And of course, it's about giving them opportunities to use their talents and skills to show that they are in a sense getting older and more mature in a family. So I encourage parents to say, you know, give kids, get kids involved in things that involve operating machinery, like lawnmowers. I'm not talking about eight-year-olds, of course, I'm talking about, you know, teenagers. Um, age appropriate, yes. <laughs> age appropriate, but age appropriate also means bringing them into the kitchen and having them cook a meal at age eight. Most eight to 10-year-olds, you know, with reasonable competencies could probably manage some part of a meal, even if it is just creating the salad, you know, and chopping up the vegetables and stuff like that. Yes, there's a sharp knife involved. But, you know, I think the more we, we bring children into those worlds and get them to do chores. Now, the one thing I often caution on that is cleaning your room is not a chore that any child likes because partly it doesn't bring any status. It doesn't bring any big zing. It doesn't seem like much of a contribution to anyone's life except your parent who's telling you to do it. You know, I prefer things like getting kids to do things that are a little more showy, that actually seem to have a bigger impact. I, I love it. Have you ever asked a five-year-old to vacuum? They love it. <laughs> no, but I'm going to try it sometime. Well, five-year-olds love to vacuum because you get to, what? think about it. You get this big, angry, noisy machine. You get to push it all over the place and you get to chase the dog out of the way and every other human being in the house moves out of your way. You are the ultimate, supreme, powerful being and you do a good thing for your family in the turn. That is a chore par excellence. That's the kind of thing that, you know, you know, they will eventually get bored doing it and yeah, they might bump something over and everything else. What I'm really getting at, our resilience, and we see this in studies of really, you know, more disadvantaged children, children who have been physically and sexually abused. We see this in children who have been neglected. That what brings them through those things is opportunities to make genuine contributions, opportunities to have a powerful identity, opportunities to feel like they belong. And I know chores might seem kind of silly, but actually they're kind of like, they convey to kids all those same messages when they're done well. Well, I think you've made the case for chores because what I hear you saying is that <laughs> it really is about uh, self-agency, building competencies, and also having some fun with it. Because that's the other thing I've heard through your work or read through your work is that there is a fun aspect to resilience. This isn't something that, you know, you do because you have to do. And it's like, uh, you know, going to the gym when you don't feel like it, but you actually wrap it around in, in fun. And I, I really enjoyed reading your book, Change Your World, because of the many examples you bring in globally. And they're every day occurrences that you seem to maximize on to help with optimizing people's and their environments, capacities and, and resources to interchange. Tell me more about your book and what kinds of, because uh, you identify strategies for resilience. What would you say to parents and caregivers about what they can be doing? What I was trying to argue in Change Your World was I know that there's been a big emphasis on, on you know, children, self-regulation, mindfulness-based practices, uh, yoga, and these are all really good things. They are, actually. They have a good track record of outcomes. But what people often don't know is the impact of those changes whittles away very quickly after the intensity of the instruction or the exercise stops. So what keeps it going is when worlds are changed around children so that there's a, a sort of a lot more emphasis on that or that the, the skill and the talent is, is continued. You, while you're trying to change your child, which by the way is very difficult, 
it's sometimes easier to simply change the world around the child. So if you want your child to be more active, well, you, you know, you take away the gaming system, you turn off the internet, you <laughs> don't lock them outdoors, but you do something kind of equivalent or whatever you want. In Change the World, I do try and get into some specific strategies around, you know, giving kids structure routines, helping them find positive identities, um, not just kids, but adults too, looking at aspects of um, power and control, what kinds of decisions we make in our lives, how we, how we connect to our culture as well. There's something very powerful about knowing where you're from, about feeling like your life matters, not just in the moment, but in some, in some sort of sense of over time that you're carrying forward a, a set of values or beliefs, feeling like your life is meaningful or, or maybe participating in a spiritual or a religious community, having a sense that maintaining your physical health, you know, those kinds of things as well. They all sort of tumble together and we, you know, let's face it, Ramona, and the work that you know we do, we know that good social service systems can dramatically impact young people's lives. We're having a debate right now in Canada over the the structure of child welfare services in Indigenous communities, and that is about, in a sense, making or helping Indigenous children to become. I want to be careful of this, but more resilient they are, but even to bring out, you know, even more capacities, and that's about changing. For gosh sakes not individual children, but that's about changing government funding formulas and management systems and governance systems. These things might seem very distant from an individual child in a, in a challenging family situation that needs all kinds of supports. But what we're really talking about is we're talking about, you know, the context uh, that, that matters around those kids. And by the way, we're, and we're learning this in a, in a different, very different study in, in a place like Drayton Valley, Alberta, where we have a large study going on with 500 youth from sort of age 14 up to 24. And we're watching, you know, we're, we're sort of working with them in a very collaborative way, but we're, we're watching them as their lives unfold during a, both this pandemic, but also this, the changing price of world oil, which has dramatic impacts on oil and gas communities and potential diversification of those communities or displacement of families. And so what we're sort of beginning to learn, of course, is you know, how does a decision made by the municipal council affect kids? How, how does a school affect children? How do their families' income affect children? And what can children do in terms of finding places that they feel safe to go to, recreational spaces? I'll give you a small example of how this works. I mean, it, it was really interesting, you know, several years ago when Drayton Valley was awash in money because the price of oil was so high, what they were doing, of course, all the companies were investing heavily in giving kids opportunities, you know, they, they, everything was subsidized and the rinks had all kinds of new equipment and kids got, you know, it was just a wash in money and everybody had everything. And I remember saying to town council at the time, well, a real sign of resilience would be to, at this moment in time when the price of oil is so high, would be to actually not fund anything, but to put all that money away for when the real problems start, when the price of oil goes down. But that's not the way we typically think, because of course, when the price of oil goes down, families start taking away the one thing that children need to maintain their resilience during an economic crash and their parents are stressed. They need those activities. They need to go and play hockey. But at the same time that they need that, there's no money for that. So you literally, during the boom times, let's face it, families have the money to pay for their kids to go play hockey. It's not then that they need the subsidies or the extra whatevers. It's actually during the bad times. And that's where resilience is so dependent on the environments. Because let's face it, why do you want a kid in hockey during a bad time, bad patch like now? 
is because that's an opportunity for the child to maintain social relationships, to feel important, to show their skills and their talents, to build self-esteem, not to mention just the routines, the expectations by somebody that you perform up to a certain level. Those are the things that we've seen over and over again for children, whether abused and neglected or simply children just coping with everyday challenges in their families. Those are the kinds of things that carry them through. Hmm. Well, you are really clear in your message in Change Your World about how it's in some ways easier or at least more important for people to work on changing their environments than individuals within the environments. And at first I, I read that and I went, mm, I don't know, but then I think, oh, it's very hard for people to change as individuals. <laughs> you, you got me on that. Once, once I thought it through, I went, yes, I get that. You know, and, and we both practice family therapy and, and have our uh, clinical practice. And we know that change from within is difficult. But so you got me hooked on this thinking about, well, changing the world around us may be the best avenue. What can parents do to change their worlds in this pandemic to help their kids thrive? Not just survive, but to thrive. What do you sure. think? Everything I'm about to say, I want to be conscious of the fact that people have died because of this, because of COVID-19. So fundamentally, we need to keep that in mind. But there's also an opportunity here um, because things have changed so much for our kids. You know, the, the one big one I keep uh, talking about and seeing, certainly in my community, is an opportunity for kids to make a genuine contribution, not only to the welfare of their families, but to also their neighbors. I, I know social distancing has to be maintained, it has to be, you have to be careful with that, but there's lots of opportunities for teenagers today to, you know, um, you know, make food for a neighbor and bring it over, do a chore, do a, a small favor for a neighbor who maybe is struggling in some way. There's there's, you know, there's just, there's just this, you know, if we look around, it is an opportunity. There's lots of chances for kids to be kind to others and to, to help out, to, to support. Even down to the level of, you know, if mom, or mom, dad, or whoever is their caregivers in the home working, then, you know, that the child is, is sort of explained that, you know, your job in a sense right now is for the family to stay economically viable. You need to whatever, uh, you know, play on your own or, or look after a younger sibling or do something that helps the whole family. I think that, you know, that's one of the biggest things I think we need to impress upon our children that they are in a crisis and that they are part of the potential solution. And I, you know, it's, it's an odd one to say, but we learn that from children in context of war or refugees. Often what children in those situations talk about is that because they knew that they were being relied upon by their families, that their family's success or just survival depended on them. That is not a bad thing when there is a real crisis like we're experiencing, that children understand that they actually do have a role to help. Now, they'll grumble and everything else, but that, that's important because it also gives them a sense of power and control over the situation. Right now, you can kind of feel like, oh, I can't see my friends. I'm totally, everyone's making decisions for me. I'm totally powerless. This is, no, what has this got to do with me? But by making it about them, by giving them a sense that this is part of their life and that, that they can make a meaningful contribution, that even them just staying away from their friends means that their grandparents are not going to get sick. These are things that I think we need to be talking about. Mike, you've given such great examples, both globally and personally. I appreciate you sharing your, your story about your, your sister and, and also how you've helped communities across Canada. 
I'm following up on your message about changing our worlds book, everything that's opened up for people to think about. What change do you think is needed here in Canada to support resilience-based parenting? That's a good one. I do think we, uh, yeah, many things. I mean, it would be a lot of things that we as individual parents can do. Um, I hear a lot of kids talking about being digitally neglected, that maybe we have just too much attention on our cell phones. I, I, I like the fact that a lot of businesses are setting boundaries in terms of you know uh, not contacting uh, the employees or parents on weekends, giving people a little bit more of a downtime. I love the fact that people are eating together more during this pandemic. A lot of bread is being baked, a lot of homegrown food. Clearly, <laughs> since we've run out of yeast and flour. <laughs> but there's a good side of that. And yes, I, yes. I, I, it's okay to laugh a little bit here, but it's, it's a serious topic, but it's also, it is interesting to watch people, because we've known from studies after studies that, that kids who eat with their families three times a week, like have a dinner, there's a whole bunch of, benefits in terms of their um, uh, their weight, how, you know, whether or not they're obese, uh, uh, their activity levels, their sense of relationship with their parents, their mental health issues, all kinds of other stuff follows from those simple changes and patterns. So I, I would like to see families, I think there's a lot of things we as families can do about, you know, changing the patterns in the home, around technology, et cetera, et cetera. I, I do think also the more that we can create safe spaces and positive places for children in our communities, I think we're in Canada, we're not bad at it, but we could certainly go, you know, continue to, to make, you know, whether it's the sidewalks or making it easier for children to walk to school, you know, making sure our communities are safe, parks, uh, those kinds of things, uh, recreational spaces and funding those things. And of course, you know, I'm always amazed by, by you know, I'm, when I travel around the world, I see, you know, other countries have managed to subsidize heavily education, secondary education for post-secondary education for, for children to make university and colleges more accessible, to create a learning economy, a highly educated population. I, I think I could see some really good reasons for doing things like that. Guaranteed income for families that are really struggling. I mean, I think there are everything mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. right up to those big macro policies, right down through how we have dinner together, create environments that are, you know, rich in opportunities for, for children, just, you know, just making sure that their voices, I know, um, uh, children first Canada, you know, um, is, you know, there's a lot of initiatives nationally to try and really make sure children are being listened to and heard in terms of their, of their agenda you know, it's not something that should just be on the side. We, we, you know, when we set policies or something, we should be thinking about how it affects children from everything from how we lay out our communities. If we're going to put in a new subdivision, you know, I, I'm always amazed, but you know, if you're not, you know, how are you creating spaces for kids and bikes and safe, you know, parklands and places where children can have adventure, um, you know, and indeed how we design our schools and our school playgrounds and our buildings. Are we, you know, have we taken away the adventure? Have we become so, conscious of, you know, uh, have we sort of pandered to people who want to be overprotective in their parenting and overprotected in how our institutions treat children. I heard an interesting statistic years ago from Cindy Blackstock, and I'm, I'm, she's a, just a shining light of advocacy for Indigenous children in, mm -hmm. in Canada and elsewhere, globally, in fact. Yeah. And she said something, and I, I, don't, I don't want to misrepresent her words, but she said something that about there were maybe 10,000 Indigenous children in Canada who weren't going to university because of a lack of funding. And I thought to myself, if that number's even remotely true, surely we as a country could figure out such a small problem. We're talking 10,000 children needing access 
And children, maybe who coming, not, well, not all Indigenous children are, are stereotypically poor or disadvantaged. I mean, I don't want to sort of imply that. But there, there are many communities which are struggling. And surely we as a country could figure out a solution to getting Indigenous children, indeed other children who have been structurally and systemically marginalized, you know, racially pushed to the side, access to higher education. We have the resources to do this as a country. It just seems ludicrous that we don't do this. And, and that, and of course, other aspects of this by you know, to making sure the children with learning challenges are adequately resourced. I see signs of hope in all these fronts. Like I do know that there are subsidies, there are programs, but gosh, I think we can do a lot better. And, and certainly, that, yeah, given, given us food for thought. It was a big question and, and you gave a fulsome answer. There is so much more that we can be doing so that, you know, folks can be thinking about this while they're socially isolating, maybe, you know, talking collectively about how to, to make this happen. We're starting to see some changes, but certainly not enough. But it's amazing to think that we can be empowered, even just think about and then act on how we change our worlds. First, it's just focusing on ourselves and, and, and our micro issues. It really opens up a whole vista. I, I, I certainly appreciate that. And to that point about, um, you know, overprotecting our children, I, I remember reading, reading your book, Too Safe for Their Own Good. I think uh, that was your main message there. And I, I can't remember, it came out about 10, 12 years ago at a point where as a parent, I read that and I went, oh, this makes so much sense this, you know, helicopter parenting and everything that was happening, um, we, you certainly opened up another avenue for a different way of thinking. We're wrapping up our time. It's, it's flowing by. And I was just wondering if, hope I'm not putting you on the spot here, but what kind of resilience strategies have you been working on during this pandemic? It's a funny one, Ramona, because of course you're in, you know, I'm in this stuff, right? So I, I guess I'd have to be honest, I'm, you know, I struggle as well, but I, I do, I do maintain routines in my life. I've been trying very much. I'm trying to keep relationships going uh, virtually and also as much as possible in person and supporting neighbors, uh, doing a lot of that kind of stuff in any way that I do a lot of sort of woodwork or outdoors sort of stuff. So I was, you know, helping clear some trees on a neighbor's lot, but it was also partly just about connecting and maintaining, you know, keeping everyone, you know, doing things around the neighborhood that need to get done for people uh, during this period of time. We've done some fundraising stuff for people whose businesses are really struggling and trying to support them through a variety of initiatives. And just in my own personal life, because I know that, you know, when you're not out, I, I do used to travel a lot and do a lot of speaking and stuff. So I know that, you know, the moment I came home, I was also saying, I've got to also explore some of my other dimensions of my personality. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a woodworker. I, I do a lot of that kind of stuff. So it's been an opportunity to get to some projects around the house and indeed around in a workshop that I have. And there's been a lot of sort of family oriented projects like that. Um, keep, and, and I knew it was important to keep fit. So, you know, not that it's any perfect, not that I'm perfect on that. I wish I should do more as most of us say. But it has been that effort to get out for walks and a little bit of exercise and doing things. Those are things that I think keep my mental health. And mostly I know that because I've worked with so many people that have been very wise guides in my life who've shown me that, you know, this is the way they survived great stressors. And um, so I've tried to bring those examples to heart, at least in my own, uh, in my own small way for me and my family. Well, it's great to hear that uh, you you put into practice what you you speak about, and um, uh, I, I thank you for sharing that and, and letting me put you on the spot. I was wondering, do you have any final words for us before we sign off? 
Oh, just, it's a great concept, this notion of resilience. And just don't burden ourselves too heavily with just always being the rugged individual. Just also think about what, you know, what you can do around you to put yourself in environments that is going to support that ruggedness. Make it, you know, make it easier on yourself to make those changes by also finding new relationships, new places to be, uh, new opportunities. Sometimes those, you know, bring out the best in you and just make it those changes you want to make so, so much easier to make. So all the best to, to you and the listeners. Well, thank you so much and good luck and good fortune in your future work. I'm sure we'll talk again and hopefully I, I can imagine for you, you that was all the travel that you used to do, you might feel like your wings are clipped, but I love how you've reframed and taken opportunities that are within your, your purview at home and sharing those with us. Take care and we'll talk Thanks. to you soon. Thanks, Ramona. Talk to you soon.